in a world filled with hot takes, social media insiders, and questionable talking heads, three college students will take on one mission, to tell the world why it's wrong about the NBA. You're listening to U92 The Moose. Beyond the Arc starts now. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back once again. We are coming at you with NBA coverage on U92 The Moose, and you know what that means. This is Beyond the Arc. As usual, it's Tuesday for us. It's Wednesday for you, as that is the way things go these days with uh, U92 operating remotely right now. You could be listening to this on the radio. You could be listening to it on a podcast. If you're listening on a podcast, you're going to get that extra bonus draft segment at the end of the show. And if you're listening on the radio, maybe go check out the podcast version so you can get that extra NBA draft talk. And as we sit here today, once again, as usual, I am joined by the two finest basketball minds on the U92 sports staff, Luke Wiggs and Nick Severini. Luke, I'll start with you. A big week of NBA basketball, but a big week around the state of West Virginia as high school sports hopefully are going to get off the ground. It's, it's uh, an interesting time for some sports broadcasters in the state of West Virginia. Yeah, it's, it's been an eventful last couple of days. I almost feel like I'm in a, on an episode of Survivor. It, it, it's a day-to-day basis whether or not your high school football team's going to play. One day you're green, one day you're yellow, one day you're orange. Our out-of-state listeners have no idea what I'm talking about. Needless to say, it's extremely stressful. And to top it all off, this has been the worst NBA playoffs as far as I'm concerned because if you blink, you miss everything. I mean, every game's been unbelievable. We've got two game sevens to talk about. I'm staying up way past my bed night, bedtime, excuse me, uh, hanging out at Nick's apartment. And spout, shout out to him for being such a gracious host so we can watch all this basketball. Uh, but it's unbelievable. Uh, I'm not going to stop staying up past midnight to watch these incredible <laughs> games. But at the same time, I, I throw us a break here. You know, we need a couple of blowouts here so I can get the sleep schedule back on track. Yes, and that was, once again, the voice of Luke Wiggs. Luke, the voice of the Clay Battelle Seabees. On the gridiron, his broadcast partner is Nick Severini, and he is also a main cog in the machine that is beyond the arc. Nick, you're coming into this with a little bit of an outside angle being from out of the state of West Virginia, but you're just as invested in this. And uh, we, we are a student organization of West Virginia University, but we certainly are not endorsing uh, the problems that the uh, student population of West Virginia University is causing for sports around the state. Yeah, don't get me wrong, Daniel Woods. Um, if I ever see anybody going out, I mean, it's on site. That's why I've texted the group chat. That's why I've texted numerous group chats. I'm ready to, um, I'm ready, I'm, I'm ready to pack key and uh, throw some shade at some people if I see them going out because I want this high school football. And uh, but obviously this is the NBA podcast, so shifting back into the NBA, I'm having a perfectly fine time watching the NBA at home, you know, with the guys, with the boys. Right? I'm having no problem doing that every single night being socially distanced, being safe. I don't get what these other students are doing. Yeah, there you go. Maybe, maybe we're just a little, a little more invested in, in the world of sport. But as you said, Nick, this is an NBA podcast, not a high school football podcast. So let's get back into the main topic of the episode. Before we get into some of the, some of the NBA games that have been played, playoff games that have been played this week, and we preview a couple game sevens coming up 
later this week, one happening tonight as we record this on Tuesday, the next happening right after this one comes out on Wednesday night. But first, the Indiana Pacers are in the market for a new head coach, letting Nate McMillan go. And there's been some speculation about who could fill that role in Indiana. And there's been some speculation about Nate McMillan possibly bouncing back right into a, into a new job to replace Brett Brown in Philadelphia. Luke, I'll start with you. The Philadelphia, or excuse me, the Indiana Pacers, obviously the, the front office not well pleased with Nate McMillan's team getting swept by the by the Miami Heat and they're looking to make a change yeah it's, it's really unfortunate the way things shook out for McMillan and the Pacers in the bubble because TJ Warren did so well and they got off to such a hot start in those round robber those seeding games or whatever you want to call them and then just really didn't perform in the first round and got hit with that early exit uh, that he was kind of put under the the lights if you will and then let go if the Pacers get off to a slow start with a limited Oladipo and TJ Warren doesn't go off I feel like Nick McMillan still has his job because I think he's a great coach. And, and not only that, the Montes Sabonis hasn't been with this team. And Oladipo's been there in kind of a limited capacity. Uh, it, it's a little bit of a shame. I, I think they're kind of on the outside looking in in terms of the powers in this playoff picture. They didn't have things going for them like a similar-seeded Miami Heat team who's just got a better put-together roster and playing better basketball at the right time. Uh, so it's just an unfortunate situation. And I think that there's going to be an NBA team out there that recognizes that. Uh, it's interesting to see who's going to fill in now. Uh, D'Antoni's name has been thrown out a ton. West Virginia connection there. Uh, I don't know if the Pacers have the deep pockets to sign him or if the Rockets are just going to keep him. But basically, it's a shame what happened to McMillan. Uh, the Pacers were an exciting team. It's a little bit concerning that if he were to go, that Oladipo might be next. Uh, but we'll have to see what happens here. Uh, probably a storyline to watch after the playoffs conclude. Bill and I think makes perfect sense for the Sixers. When you look at a lot of the problems that the Sixers have, I think a lot of it revolves around consistency, especially this year when they lack that shooting from most notably Jimmy Butler probably. But I think uh, the Sixers really struggled with consistency throughout the season. McMillan brought a lot of that to Indiana, even though they had a lot of outside factors, the star player Oladipo being injured a majority of the time there. And throughout it all, McMillan's been able to lead a Pacers team to 42, 48, 48, and 45 wins during his tenure as a head coach. I think, um, I think he fits perfectly within the Sixers system, and I think uh, he's someone that can really bring the best out of those Sixers players. Well, that does it uh, for, for the discussion of, of Nate McMillan. I agree with you, Nick. I think he would be a good fit there. I think that, that Sixers team is, is in a weird position moving forward, but I think Nate McMillan's is as good an option for them as any. But we – really do need to get down into what's going on in the NBA, what's going on with the playoffs. And before we do, we do need to address the fact that since we released our last episode, uh, three nights of NBA games uh, were postponed, uh, starting with uh, the Milwaukee Bucks and the Orlando Magic. Of course, uh, players uh, boycotting games in protest of, of the senseless shooting of Jacob Blake in, in Kenosha, Wisconsin. And it's, it's something that I feel is important to, to recognize on this show because this is an NBA show, but these players have, have a much larger platform to, to speak out against racial injustice, like, like things in, in the case of Jacob Blake, like things in the case of George Floyd. And guys, I just, obviously this was about a week ago that this has happened. We've moved on the, the first round's almost over, but this, this, I feel, was an important step uh, for the NBA and for professional sports as a whole uh, to, to stand up 
against racial injustice in this case and, and the league to stand with the players. Well, no doubt that um, in terms of influence, I mean, we can all agree that the NBA players have the most influence over players in other leagues, even in the NFL, you know, when you're in the NBA, you're usually the star, right? It's a real player centric league. And as a byproduct of that, they have a big voice. They have a big voice, not only in NBA fans, but in the culture as well in, you know, the basic American citizen that watched basketball, because I think basketball players get idolized more than almost any other type of player you know, on an average basis. So for um, them to take a stand like this is a pretty big deal um, considering, you know, a lot of racial injustice has happened. A big part of um, the reason why the NBA players agreed to the bubble was so that they can have the last names that they can choose on the back of their jerseys and everything. So for them to go to the next level, it, it means a lot. And it's, I think it's a big statement. I mean, we're living through history right now. And it's going to be really interesting 20 years from now when the 30 for 30 comes out about, everything that happened in the world of sports as far as this is concerned in the year 2020. I thought it was handled perfectly. NBA players recognized that they had an opportunity to make a statement, but then they came back and played. You know, one of the things when they went back to went to Orlando was they wanted to make sure that their voices were going to continue to be heard. And I think that they have been uh, during this entire process. But for them to walk away from the bubble, I think wouldn't have been advantageous for them to continue spreading that message. So it was instrumental that they were able to sit out those couple of games it was three days I think that's what you said Daniel uh but then to come back and play have the opportunity to have those post-game press conferences and those multiple interactions with the media that they have in the bubble to continue spreading the message which I'm sure they will for the rest of the postseason uh Luke you bring up a good point regarding the way they went about it the fact that I think there could have been a lot of criticism if they had just canceled the season and I, I you know I don't know the position that they're in obviously I'm not an NBA player but I think, I, I think it's tough. It's a lot when you see those news stories come out and everything, and it, it's tough to just play. Um, that being said, I think they realize how much the NBA helps people. It, it's an escape for a lot of people, isn't it? And it's not just the college student that doesn't want to go out. Instead, they want to watch basketball. It's for a lot of people. It's, these are role models. So for them to make a huge statement like this and then return to the court, I, I think it shows them that um, it's been nothing but good intention for it, and it shows uh, the heart of the NBA players as a whole. I agree with you guys wholeheartedly. This was, as I said, a major step forward in terms of the NBA's stance on social justice. It's It's been one of the more progressive leagues. But like you said, Nick, these NBA players are, in terms of the world of sports, some of the, some of the, most, the foremost role models in the world. And I would agree with you guys, taking that step to come back and play, even after everything that has happened, is, is – a huge statement. And, and now that we're talking about them, them coming back and playing, let's, let's get into those games. So uh, a couple first round series wrapping up since we last came to you. The first of which being uh, ending on Saturday, the Milwaukee Bucks uh, finish off a five game series win over the Orlando magic, one eighteen to one Oh four and 28.17 rebounds from Giannis Antetokounmpo guys. I'm not sure there's really much more to get into with this series as we all kind of agreed that game one was a little bit of a fluke. The Magic come out with their best punch. The Bucks come out with their worst. But Milwaukee turns it around. It wasn't always easy, but they turn it around, win four straight games to finish that series off. Well, that's what's weird about this Milwaukee team. Obviously, they dominated the back four games of those series, and then they just kind of lay down in their first game against the Heat. We'll talk about that in a moment. But, I mean, everything that we saw in that game – five performance, 20-plus uh, for Middleton and Giannis, double figures for Lopez and for Bledsoe, and contributions off the bench, George Hill, who's 
uh, was in the starting lineup yesterday, actually, Marvin Williams as well, you thought, well, this is the Bucks team that we expected when we picked NBA title contenders uh, earlier on in this podcast a couple of episodes ago. Uh, it's weird that we've got a completely new look Bucks here in game one against the Heat, but hey, maybe that's what we're going to see from Milwaukee. They're going to absolutely lay down in game one and then win the next four games of the series. And I could very easily see that happening in this round as well against Miami. Yeah, that, that, that makes a ton of sense. And, and Nick, I, I would like to get your thoughts on that as well. We're going to get into that game one between the Bucks and the Heat a little bit later. But as Luke said, this, this Milwaukee team looked pretty, pretty good in game five against the Magic. And it was a little surprising to see them struggle so, so mightily in game one against Miami. Yeah, and I think the difference to that is the fact that, unlike Orlando, Miami has a heavy reliance on the three, but I think that's the Bucks' biggest weakness, especially in the corners. The corner threes, that's how the Magic were able to take game one, if I remember correctly, is the, just being able to destroy them from beyond the arc. And unfortunately for the Bucks, that's exactly, that's exactly the heat game plan towards the end of the game. And another big factor, too, that really you know held the Bucks back and cause them to lose game one is just basically Jimmy Butler taking the rock with three minutes left and saying, I'm going to win this game. And um, you almost wonder where that is for the Bucks. You wonder who that player is because he have Jimmy Butler and he got it done late. He got it done with some extra, with some very key buckets later on in the, in the game. And you just, you look at that Bucks roster and you were, and you wonder where that's coming from for them. Yeah, the, the Bucks obviously, like I said, we'll get more into that game as we move forward in the show, as we get more into the, the games coming up and the games that happened yesterday on Monday for us. But the other series that wrapped up since the last time we, we recorded this show, the Lakers and Trailblazers, Los Angeles winning game five, 131-122. Obviously, Damian Lillard goes down with an injury, does not play in game five of that series. Still admirable performances out of C.J. McCollum and, and Carmelo Anthony in defeat. 36 points for McCollum as well as seven assists, uh, 27.7 rebounds for Carmelo. Uh, but the Lakers, their two stars got it done when they needed to. Not, not many other guys on that roster particularly showed up in a big way in game five, but they get 43 points, nine rebounds, four assists out of Anthony Davis, and they get 36 points, 10 rebounds, 10 assists from LeBron. This this Lakers team, obviously they're going to need some role players to step up as the, we go deeper into the playoffs. But that, that two-headed star punch, two of, the, two of the five best players in the NBA, has always been their trump card, it seems, Nick. And they're, they're rolling on right along the same way they always have moving into the second round. I'll keep it real with you guys. You might disagree with me, but I think uh, if AD and LeBron are both killing it, it's impossible to beat this team. I genuinely think so. It doesn't matter how poor the shooting is. We've seen LeBron and AD absolutely carry some of these games and take over. We saw it in game five where their backs were kind of against the wall. They weren't getting a lot of production in the first half. Then the third quarter, Anthony Davis and LeBron connection just started kicking off. And it was, it was a double-digit game by midway through the fourth, and the game was basically over. We saw Jared Dudley get minutes after that. It doesn't matter what you throw at them. If you get LeBron and AD – I'll reiterate, you get LeBron and AD at their best, you can't beat them. Luke, your, your thoughts about the Lakers moving forward with LeBron and AD honestly probably playing at their peaks right now. Yeah, I'd have to echo Nick's sentiments there. I mean, if they're playing at their, their peak capacity, but we haven't seen that this entire series or this entire season, if you will. I mean, they combined for 79 points in 70 minutes, and they're going to have to do that 
they're going to get a tough competitor in this next round, whether it be the Rockets or the Thunder. We'll talk about that here in a little bit. Uh, it's going to be hard for the Rockets to match up with them defensively. The Thunder maybe a little bit easier, probably not. Um, yeah, they were dominant. And this score is not – it's a little bit closer than – it's a little bit misleading is what I'm trying to get with. The, and Nick said Dudley got minutes down the stretch here. It was just complete dominance after that little blip on the radar early on, very similar uh, to the Bucks. And I would agree with Nick, if they're playing at their best, which it appears that they are more times than not, uh, LeBron and Anthony Davis are probably the best pairing here in the playoffs. Uh, could that slow down? Maybe, but probably not. I misspoke earlier. We got one more series to wrap up, close the book on. It's the Los Angeles Clippers and the Dallas Mavericks in the 2-7 matchup. Uh, the Mavericks, I would say, probably push the Clippers a little bit more than any of us were expecting. They take this one to six games. Uh, LA wins 111-97 in that game six, get 33 points, 14 rebounds, seven assists, and five steals from Kawhi Leonard. Paul George, still not efficient, but he showed up a little bit more in this one with 15, 9, and 7. And then for Dallas, Luka Doncic without, uh, excuse me, without Kristaps uh, Porzingis, kind of there out by himself, 38 points, 9 rebounds, 9 assists, just shy of that triple-double. Dorian Finney-Smith finishes there as their second leading scorer with 16 points. Uh, this Clippers team, guys, uh, got pushed a little bit by by the Mavericks obviously and we talked last week that it was going to take Paul George showing up for this team to make any kind of run having Paul George at, at anything close to his capacity is going to be huge for the Clippers getting deeper into the playoffs and I think game six against the Mavericks proved that even if he's not everything that he is in the regular season it's still a major factor for them yeah, I mean, this Clippers team was just too good in the end. And it's an underrated storyline, I think, when you look at Kawhi Leonard's career, that he went from being uh, a top 10 NBA player and amongst that group averaging under two assists per game to add that playmaking ability to his game at this point in his career. And the same can be said for Paul George. Wasn't it getting done shooting the ball? He pulls down nine boards in this game to go along with seven assists. And the bench starting to come alive in a little way here uh, for the Clippers. But the Mavericks just ran out of gas. Uh, they hit a brick wall named Marcus Morris. I'm kidding. Uh, but they just <laughs> – uh, the, the Clippers were just too good in the end. Luka Doncic, you know, hats off to him. Not quite cracking the top five players in the NBA, even though he got a ton of hype after that series. But, man, it was, it was a fun performance. One of many performances that we've seen in the playoffs so far. Nick, this is a conversation that we had. Obviously, we've talked about the Clippers a ton. We know where they're going to get in this playoffs as long as Paul George can have some sort of efficient play. But we talked about this last night, watching games about the Mavericks and their, their ceiling with their current roster. Obviously, Luka Doncic and Kristaps Porzingis stand out above the pack as far as this roster goes. But for the sake of the podcast, let's, let's get into it a little bit. This Dallas Mavericks team, I posed this question to you guys last night. This Dallas Mavericks team, in the next four years, without adding a third star, can this team make the Western Conference Finals? Yes. Yes, definitely. I think they, they need to add pieces, but a third star, I don't think they need it. Because you have to remember, Luka Doncic is still very young, 21, I believe. And Porzingis, you know, he's still, you know, he's still on a good part of 20 at the moment. They still have some development to go four years from now. They're going to be in their primes. The one piece that I think they need more than anything is a, a Pat Bev or a strong defensive stopper that can play more on the wings, maybe more than that. So Pat, 
Pat Bev might not make the most sense, but they basically need that defensive stopper on the wings. If they're able to get another three and D guy that can really um, shut down the opposing team's best player, I think there's a very good chance we see the Mavericks in a Western Conference Finals. Not in four years, maybe as soon as two years. Luke Wiggs, the same question to you. No. Uh, I mean, third. I, no matter how many role players you bring in, I mean, it's going to be tough in a Western Conference that boasts an Anthony Davis and a LeBron. And I, I, it's hard for me to watch Donovan Mitchell and Jamal Murray trade shots, Jokic being on that team as well, the Clippers, and think that the Mavericks deserve to be in that conversation. The same can be said for the Houston Rockets OKC series. I just think they're so much better. You look at the, the roster makeup for this Mavericks team, no team that starts Kristaps Porzingis, who up until this year was the only seven-footer in the history of the NBA that struggled to get seven rebounds per game, and, and Maxi Kleber is going to push the needle enough for this team to contend for a Western Conference championship, let alone an NBA championship. And obviously, Tim Hardaway Jr. as your second-best scoring option uh, isn't going to get it done either. Uh, they're going to have to make some serious roster reshuffling and realignment for them to build a championship team around Luka regardless of what that may be, a guard that they can get in the draft where Luca can take some time off and work off the ball some, a bunch of 3 and D guys like a Vassell or Robert Covington, a Sadiq Bay that they can pick up in a trade or free agency, a lot of guys like that. If this Mavericks team makes the Western Conference Finals in the next four seasons, I guarantee you they have less than five players that are on their current roster right now. Okay. Well, I'll double, I'll double down what I said yeah. before then. I'll say this. If they get – Another strong starter in the front court that isn't Maxi Kleber. If they get a good three and D defensive wing, they do it. That those are the only two players they need to get right now. That's how much I rate Luka Doncic and Porzingis, especially. I think they need more defense and I think they need more depth down low. But I think, I think you said there won't be five players. I think they only need to add two players in that category. That means getting rid of some of the bench. I get that, but I think they're two pieces away from a West for being a top two Western Conference team. I mean, well, it's this, just this is an interesting. When you look at sorry, to cut you go ahead, Luka. Sorry. Oh, it's just there's so many talented teams. We're not talking about the East here. It is no, East I get it. I get it. I hear you. But uh, Jokic is there for the long term, as is Jamal Murray. If Anthony Davis comes back to the Lakers and you know LeBron's got one more move up his sleeve to get a third star there, you know, the Clippers core is not going anywhere. The Rockets core probably isn't going anywhere. Oklahoma City is sitting on the greatest collection, the greatest stockpile of draft picks in the history of mankind that they could use to get another asset. It's just a, a very high mountain to climb. I'll, I'll grant you this. Luka Doncic is that guy. He's a very special player. Uh, he, he could develop into the kind of guy that becomes the LeBron that single-handedly carries the team to the top of the conference. I'm not ruling it out as a possibility. It's just very unlikely. All right, Luke, I'll bounce this back at you. And I'll, I'll take Nick's point of adding two guys in the front court to that roster. So you take, you take that team as it is constructed now and whether it be by trade or later down the line in free agency, you add to that roster in place of Dorian Finney-Smith, you add Robert Covington and in place of Maxi Cleaver, you add Julius Randall. Does that move the needle for you? It moves the needle. Sure. But not enough. I think to compete for uh, like we're talking about here, a Western conference title. Uh, you know, Kristaps Porzingis' development is great, but it's almost an outlier season when you look and see how well he rebounded basketball. And there's so much work, I think, that Luka Doncic do to turn himself into a better defensive player. And I don't know how much better he can be because he's limited by his athleticism. I don't want to detract because he's, what, top seven player in the NBA right now coming off of maybe the greatest playoff, first-round playoff performance by a player that young in NBA history. But I just think there's too many concerns. 
I, I said coming into the Clippers series that there just aren't guys that are going to get stops. Robert Covington or uh, a draft pick like a Sadiq Bay or a Devin uh, a Williams, Patrick Williams, excuse me, Devin Williams, big for the Mountaineers, uh, helps. But you, you need more than just one guy like that. You know, Julius Randle becomes a, a muscular presence down low, gives you a little bit more girth. Maxi Cleaver comes off the bench 20, 25 minutes per game. It, it, it's just still not enough in my opinion. All right, Nick, Nick, your thoughts. Obviously, you said you think this team's two pieces away. Uh, Julius Randle and Robert Covington added to this roster. That's just two names I threw out as they, they seemed like fits based on what you were discussing there. What do you think? They do it in two years if they pick up those players. Okay. They do it in two years. I, I just think that's the perfect combination. We were talking about it at, the, at Kegos yesterday, talking about what pieces could fit around Luka Doncic when he's so ball-dominant at the end of games. I think those are the two perfect pieces you get. You have Julius Randle, who's going to dominate the mid-quarters, and Roko, who can get you a defensive stop late. I just think that's the perfect combination. You look at the teams that they're playing against. We're going to watch game seven tonight between the Jazz and the Nuggets. I think that team beats both of them in six. I think they could do that. That's the tough. Clip, that's you don't think – you don't th- – you don't, That's tough. You don't – you don't think so? You don't think you don't you don't think so with that roster? You know, I think that I think they handle them in six. Both I of mean, those teams. There's and a, we haven't even talked about how the Clippers are gonna get worse two years from now when they have Paul George and Kawhi Leonard both on player deals at that point. There's a really good chance Kawhi might say no to that player option and heads back to free agency. You're looking at the Lakers, Anthony Davis might not be there at that time. The Rockets are only gonna get worse from here. And you got the Thunder. It's down to the it's it, the Thunder Mavericks in two years, Western Conference Finals. I, I just I don't see how you can look at the performance that Jamal Murray just put forward and, and think that a Mavericks team could be better than that. I'll tell you exactly why because Doncic can be better than that. Doncic can match that. Maybe, but uh, who's going to match Jokic on that team? Who's going to match Michael Porter Jr.? Who's when you get someone like ball? Julius Randle and, and uh, Chris Porzingis has two years to turn into at least an average defensive player. How good do you think Kristaps Porzingis really is? I'm sorry to I think he's one of the best. I get it. He's not good Give me defensively. Give a number. Top 25? I think it, he's a top player. 10 offensive Ooh. big. Top 10 offensive big in the league. I think that's the disconnect and between the two of us. Is, I know, think so. Porzingis, it's how we Porzingis. I, I would hesitate to put him off the top of my head in my top 40. Uh, America's top 40 with Luke Wiggs. Um <laughs> I just uh, – <laughs> that's the disconnect. If Luka Doncic is going to come back next season, double, average double-digit rebounds, become a better rim protector, shoot 40% from the corner and 35% from three overall, then we can have this conversation. I just haven't seen that yet. If he can work in that pick-and-roll, pick-and-pop better with Luka Doncic than he had, because when that trade happened, that was something that we talked about would develop into just beauty, him and Luka Doncic running that pick-and-roll, pick-and-pop, and it just hasn't developed into the elite system that it could be. Maybe that's coaching, maybe that's personnel, but we're talking about uh, a five-seed jump here. This is a seven-seed that got their lunch handed to them in the last two games of this series, uh, and I just and we're talking about we're talking about ten wins worth of improvement in the regular season minimum, and the ability to derail multiple teams leading up to a Western Conference Final in the by far best conference in the NBA with a very bright future, and that's just a tough, tough, tough pill to swallow. I mean, Luka Doncic is going to be in the league for a long time. Let's talk about this age 27, 28 season for him, not two years from now. I'm ready to, I'm ready to commit. I'm ready to commit early. 
All right. Well, uh, honestly, add those pieces. I'm on. I'm. This is such a tough, tough decision. I will say, if it's the next four years, I'm not going to go out on a limb with Nick and say it's in the next two. But if you add Julius Randle, Robert Covington, or at least similar pieces to this team, this I think this is a Western Conference Finals team in the next four years. And I think it's because Luka Doncic is such a transcendent player. Uh, I caught flack for this on on Sports Page, which is U92's. Uh, weekly sports talk show, which is debuting for the season tonight as you're hearing this. If you're hearing this on Wednesday, Sports Page will be live on U92 for the first time tonight if you're listening to this on Wednesday. But I said earlier this year on Sports Page that we were, we were discussing who, who the torchbearer after LeBron James is going to be. And everybody was saying, oh, it's Giannis Antetokounmpo. It's clearly Giannis Antetokounmpo. The way the NBA is going and the international expansion of the National Basketball Association I said on that podcast that Giannis Antetokounmpo not making the NBA Finals last year out of that Eastern Conference, that closed his window because Luka Doncic is the torchbearer for the NBA once LeBron James retires. And that is why the Dallas Mavericks are are a Western Conference Finals team in the next four years. Because I gotta Luka say, Doncic, this is gonna be this is gonna be a storyline for the next like three years. Luka this Dallas Doncic, Mavericks team, man. Luka Doncic is. Within the next two years, at worst, the top three player in the league. I, I truly believe that. Can I, can I say one more thing really quickly? I've always been a, a supporter of James Harden, who's such an offensive, transcendent player. And year after year, I get batted down by trying to convince people that I think he's a borderline top five player. And they say the exact same thing every single year. He's held back by his defense. You look at all the elite players in the league right now, Kawhi Leonard, Anthony Davis, Giannis, who we're talking about right now, even LeBron at this point, they all can consistently get stops at the defense to the end of the floor. James Harden can't, and that's why I think you guys wouldn't put him in the top five, and I don't think Luka Doncic can. Well, folks, we've got a little bit of a change in the podcast, an interesting turn of events, uh, some technical issues uh, during our afternoon recording uh, have led to us recording this in person uh, following the end of uh, Game 7 between the Denver Nuggets and the Utah Jazz. So the second half of this podcast will be in person. It will be after uh, Game 7 of that series as well as Game 2 of the Boston Celtics-Toronto Raptors series. And that's where we'll kick it off, guys. Uh, the Boston Celtics, a really strong performance in Game 1. Uh, we talked about the possibilities of Marc Gasol struggling in that series, matched up with the athletic bigs that the Celtics bring to the table. He really struggled in game one. And, and it was a, a complete performance across the board uh, for the Boston Celtics, but I'm just not sure it's it's really sustainable. I mean, we're talking about a team that shot 36% from three during the regular season. They shoot 44% from three that night and probably have their most balanced scoring game uh, of the entire bubble. I, I, this is a series that obviously the Celtics are up now two to nothing and they look good in game two as well. Uh, but I'm not counting the Toronto Raptors out of this series at all. No, definitely not. Uh, it was a lot harder for them to sustain that in three games and they did it for one more. So it's 2-0 right now. Uh, it, it's really up to who's going to answer the call for Toronto, whether it be Van Bleet, whether it be Lowry. Back-to-back picks on Williams, by the way, fantastic. And uh, Jason Tatum, once he keeps abusing Gasol off the pick and roll or just abusing Van Bleet just because he's so much bigger and so much more athletic, you've got to come up with an answer for that. If it's OG and then you put Pascal on uh, Jalen Brown, 
Uh, but it makes things a lot more comfortable now that it's 2-0. I think the Raptors are in a little bit more trouble than you guys are uh, egging on at the moment because we have to understand that, yes, they got it done in game one, but the first half of game two, I mean, the Celtics wouldn't say before. I mean, there was a point where midway through the second quarter, it was 35 points, and Robert Williams and Jason Tatum had, like, 29 of the 35 points. The other guys weren't contributing. In those situations, the Raptors just need to play better, and they didn't. And that's what led to the Celtics coming back. And you, have, you understand that they did pick it up in that second half, but, you know, those type of games I think the Raptors need to win. I think that was a game that the Raptors needed to win, and they didn't. So I'm still not counting them out. I had them originally in six. I would have them winning in seven now, but I think their backs are a little bit against the wall here. I mean, I think we need to have the conversation about the opportunistic Boston Celtics. They get a Philadelphia team that's – uh, doesn't have Ben Simmons anymore and an injured Embiid and then the, the Raptors come laying down in two games that they take advantage of and they've just been in the right place at the right time and uh, shout out to Brad Stevens and his gang for answering the call. Well you can still say they right place right time but you know they swept the sixes you know what I mean? Yeah, yes, yeah, they, they, had, yeah. they played a bad sixes team but they still had the sweep and that's exactly what they did and now they're two up against the Raptors. I get that they've had maybe an easier route than some other teams, most other teams in that regard but they're still getting it done. They're doing everything they need to do. And this is a Celtics team, in my opinion, that's, that's built to have success. That's built to create mismatches with guys like Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum on the wings and then Kemba Walker scoring from the point guard position. And they've got guys that can, that can hold it down at the end of games. And we've talked about this before with Kawhi Leonard moving on in free agency. That's just not something that, for my money, the Toronto Raptors have. I mean, Pascal Siakam, they've tried to make him into that guy. He's... He's just not taken to it. He's, he's struggled in that kind of role the last couple of years. Uh, Fred Van Vliet did it some last year. We saw him uh, take some of the shots down the stretch in game two. Uh, but we've talked, we talked about this with the Denver Nuggets, uh, who their fortunes have turned around a little bit in that regard. But uh, Toronto doesn't have somebody that they can just look to to say, go get a bucket at the end of the game. And that's a big red flag for me, not necessarily – early in the playoffs, but as they get deeper into the playoffs, potentially if they win this series, that's that's a big, big problem. And I think it'll be a big, big problem in this series. Their lack of leadership was epitomized by what that last possession was. You know, uh, no call, no timeout called by your Coach of the Year winner and Nick Nurse. Fred Van Fleet just running around with a chicken with his head cut off had the wherewithal to get down the floor and fire up a shot, but nobody was with him, no numbers, nobody knew what to do. Half of them were looking for a timeout, half of them were looking to run. Fred Van Vliet doesn't look at the rim. They get the ball across midcourt with about four seconds, if I'm correct, which is enough to call a timeout and run a play. Instead, nobody does anything, nobody answers the call, and Van Vliet just has to throw it at the rim without looking at the rim until he let the ball go. And that's just a very, very, very bad look. But we just heard Jokic in the post-game interview of his game said they were down 3-1, and they had a team meeting, and they said, guys, you know, no one's expecting us to come back from this. Just play loose, play fast. Toronto needs to have a similar kind of meeting. And granted, a Jamal Murray is not wearing a Toronto Raptors jersey right now, which is a huge problem for them. But uh, it's not over, but it is bleak. And I think um – I don't want to put all the blame on one player because obviously there's there's blame to go all around for that Toronto Raptors team, especially in that final possession. But you can't forget what happened in possession before that. We're past all Siakam, ran the clock down, and then stepped out of bounds. That's just inexcusable for someone who's gotten that much hype um, on that Raptors team. And we've seen a regular season version of him and a postseason version of him. And a postseason version of him is someone that barely gets on the floor and is definitely not targeted. And that needs to change if the Raptors are to win. The, the end of that game, obviously there's a Fred Van Vliet possession there on the final shot. 
but there's the the Raptors had three opportunities to score there at the end. Pascal Siakam drives in the lane, gets stripped by Marcus Smart. Uh, Smart ends up trying to throw it back off Siakam. There's a scramble for the ball. Uh, whatever happens, they review it. It goes back to the Raptors. Uh, they run a play off the baseline. Siakam catches in the corner, steps out of bounds. Uh, and then obviously you have the Van Vliet shot at the end. Uh, for a team that, like you said, Luke, has a coach of the year uh, sitting on their bench, uh, it, it just seems like the there, that was not the time to let your guys play. And it seemed like that what was that's what happened on those last three opportunities where you have a near turnover, a turnover, and a rush shot with, with nothing to set it up at, at the very end of a really important game, a game that, that I'm not sure I'm going to go out on a limb and say this, but some would argue they needed to win in this situation. I mean, that's borderline must win. I agree with you there. And, and it's time to get a hold of things or things are going to get ugly very fast. Uh, and it's absolutely inexcusable, like you said, multiple looks to win a game and, and nobody answering the call. And, and those are moves like Siakam stepping out of bound that just cripple a person mentally for the rest of the series. So look for the veterans in that locker room, the Marcus Alls and Serge Ibaka, who have been in situations like that before, to kind of corral and rouse the team as we move on into game uh, three um, and, and try to turn the series around while they have the chance. Uh, we're dwelling on the end of this game, which obviously is a big point. I mean, the Raptors definitely put themselves in a good position to win. But I go back to that first half. This team should have been up 10-15 at the half, and instead they kept it close. I think um, I don't think we're discussing the end of the game shenanigans if they don't step up like they should have early on. I, I have to agree with that. That That's a big, big issue from my perspective that, like you said, you get a Celtics team playing so poorly in the first half of that game, and the, the Raptors just – they, they couldn't capitalize. It was extremely frustrating to watch. But we've, we've, we've beaten this series to death. We're beating a dead horse at this point. But the other, the other second-round Eastern Conference series uh, that, that's going on right now started a couple of days ago now with the uh, – excuse me, yesterday, Monday, Wednesday, if you're listening. Or, yeah. Uh, One of those. I'm lost, I'm lost in the week. You're listening to this on Wednesday. This game happened on Monday. It's the Milwaukee Bucks and the Miami Heat. And there were a lot of people that were looking at the Miami Heat as the, as the Bucks killers in this uh, playoff series. And if you look at game one, that's exactly what happened. We talked about it a little bit earlier uh, on the show with the Bucks closing their series out against the Magic and what they're looking, out, looking at in this series against Miami. And the Miami Heat looked like exactly what people were saying they would be able to do to beat the, to beat the Milwaukee Bucks. Jimmy Butler plays good defense uh, on either Milton or Antetokounmpo for 48 minutes, and then they hit three-pointers on the other end. The, the Bucks can't match the pace, and Miami wins the game. And that's, that's the, the formula people have said they were going to have to take to win, and they did it in game one. And I was, I was genuinely impressed with how they implemented that against the team that's obviously the number one seed in the Eastern Conference. Yeah, I mean, I discussed this earlier on in the podcast about uh, just how the Heat, their game plan, if they're able to execute it, can be the Achilles heel for this Bucks team because obviously the Bucks have faced a lot of criticism, even in their series against the Magic, letting game one go by them. And the reason for that is, especially in the corner, the threes are, tend to be wide open. Um, but I have a question for you guys to point out because I've been seeing this a lot, some of the storylines regarding Giannis Antetokounmpo. Um, just in this last game that we just watched with um, Jamal Murray and Donovan Mitchell, it was Donovan Mitchell guarding Jamal Murray at the end. Um, is there a narrative that Antetokounmpo may be an overrated defender considering he's not guarding 
typically the best players late in games, more specifically Jimmy Butler, he's usually passing it off. I'm not saying I agree with it, but this has become a pretty big storyline with Giannis being defensive player of the year, and yet down the stretch he's not guarding Jimmy Butler in game one. I don't buy into that, and I'll tell you why. I think what makes him so valuable as a defensive player is not what he can do on the ball, but what he can also do off the ball. I mean, he's a guy that can hang out on the perimeter, lock down whoever you want to talk about, which is Jay Crowder in this series, and then take two steps to his left and be right at the rim. And you can't say that about very many people that are that big and that agile. Do they go to that change in game two? Maybe, because you're absolutely right. Budenholzer has been criticized all season long for giving up a plethora of corner threes, which is something that is worked into his defensive scheme. So you wonder if he pulls something out of his pocket for game two. But the narrative I think people aren't talking about enough, and I've heard that defensively for Giannis, it's that he led the NBA in points in the paint. He averaged about seven and a half per game, or 17 and a half per game. He has four in game one. Uh, everyone was talking about Bam Adebayo being the, the Giannis killer. He always shoots so poorly against We didn't take any shots. We watched the game with a Heat fan, and he was quick to point out that we were at Kegler's, and Christian's his name, late in the first quarter, and Giannis had not taken anybody off the dribble yet. He kept going to Middleton, who Middleton stepped up, I really think, Middleton in that game. Is, That's a great look. Middleton is what makes this team the number one seed. If sure. Middleton's yeah, on absolutely. this team... They're a five seed, yeah. I think. But... Middleton carried them early. You know, Lopez hit a couple of shots. But Giannis is not – he won't take out of, out, Bam Adebayo off the dribble, and that's something that needs to change. I could see him being on Butler for game two if that's the direction they want to go. I don't think they need to because the Heat's defense isn't exactly stellar. But he needs to get to the rim more often and prove what makes him the most dominant two-way player in the NBA. To answer your question, Nick, as far as Giannis's defense goes – I think Chris Middleton is the key to that argument because obviously Giannis Antetokounmpo is uh, he's an elite defensive player, but he has the luxury of playing with another All NBA caliber defender right. in Chris Middleton, and that's that's the what sticks out to me is because Giannis Antetokounmpo late in games is going to be so ball dominant, he's going to have the ball in his hands so much on the offensive end. I don't pro- have a problem with. There being another elite wing defender on that team in Chris Middleton and him deferring to Chris Middleton as the primary defender. And as Luke said, his ability off the ball still still impacts the game defensively even if he's not guarding the best player on the floor. I think if if it weren't to, if it weren't I think it is designed into their offensive into their game plan that, that Giannis Antetokounmpo could easily guard the best player on the other team. But to save his legs on the offensive end, I, I think with having the luxury of Chris Middleton, it makes a lot more sense uh, to to be able to play him away from a, a situation where he would be the primary on-ball defender for most of most of uh, a late-game possession. I mean, think about it this way. You're putting a situation late in the game with Middleton on Jimmy Butler, theoretically, which is, you know, the matchup we've been talking about. Giannis playing off the ball from his defender, or their, his offensive responsibility, which is either Drake Crowder or Andre Iguodala, neither of which are going to have the ball in their hands to shoot a corner three late in the game. So it gives them the opportunity to not just have the elite defense of Chris Middleton, but a defender and a half with Giannis's ability to work off the ball. Yeah, that that is is a very important thing to look at, I think, with Giannis's defense, or the Bucks' defensive system as a whole. Obviously, this, this Miami team with the corner threes is built to attack uh, the Bucks. I'll, I'll go to you guys. Obviously, Celtics Raptors are two games into that series. Not really much to predict there. Uh, but the the Bucks and the Heat after one game uh, predictions for this series. Who wins? How many games? He and seven. Bucks and six. Interesting. I will go. 
I'll go Bucks in seven. I think this goes to seven. I think. You want to talk about it? I mean, we can. <laughs> Let's talk about Let's it. Talk Let's about talk it. about it. Um, I'm a big, I'm a big Giannis fan. I really am. But there comes a point where he, there needs to be some criticism in his game, and the main criticism I have is you can blame Budenholzer, but he's not guarding the best. He's not guarding the best player on the other team late, who took over. Jimmy Butler did that on himself in Game One at the end of that game, and two. I mean, he. I think he's passing the ball a little bit too much late in these games. I think he's not taking over. I think he's relying ridiculously heavy on Chris Middleton right now to get the shots. And Middleton might be the most consistent shooter in the NBA in terms of his mid-range game and in. But, I mean, there comes a point where Giannis needs to step up. And I get he's still young, right? You know, he's two years younger than LeBron when he entered his first finals, but or he won his first finals part of But, I mean, there comes a point where I'm – Done being patient with him. I've I've said for a while that this this that Giannis is the second coming, the the next great player after LeBron, and he's not done enough production, especially in his jump shot, to get it done. How this turns into the series is that well, there's five minutes left. I mean, I think that he have their number. If they keep it single digit with five minutes left, he win every game. I don't think there's any situation other than Chris Middleton carrying the team on his back that gets the Bucks to win late in games when it's close. I'll go the other direction. I mean, Giannis, very clearly, is head and shoulders the most talented player in the NBA right now. He, he literally does everything as well as anybody he's except the best, shoot the he's ball. He's the best 48-minute player probably mm-hmm. in the NBA, but and, when you're in the playoffs, I mean, there's a reason they play with a leather ball and they don't play with a calculator to do that. No, it's I hear because you. late in <clears> game, you need to have that dog in you. And it's, I know it's stupid. It's something... You no, know, I know. And what I was about to say is I think that you talk about the dog in you. That comes out of Giannis in this series. This could be his crowning achievement. This could be... You know, you look at... The, I shouldn't say this, but you look at the greats throughout history. Michael Jordan had to get past his pistons. They had to go into their bag and come back and a changed man. That could be this series for Giannis and start his legacy. The opposite thing of that, and you guys may disagree with this because I like, I like Jimmy Butler as much as the next man. Jimmy Butler is not that much better than Chris Middleton, in no, my opinion. Not at all. Giannis is the best player on the floor. It's not even close. And Chris Middleton is not that much worse than Jimmy Butler. And then you've got Bam, and then you've got a, a quagmire. So what players. does that say about the Bucks right now that they can? Yeah, well, we're talking about one game. We're talking about one game. But what I'm saying is, because this is not just this year. If Giannis, I hear you. If Giannis has a Giannis Antetokounmpo regular season game, the Bucks win that game by ten points. And is he more than capable of doing that in the next four games of the series and to be a gentleman sweep? Yes. If Pascal Siakam plays like in the regular season, I think they win in five, too. Yeah. But yeah. yeah. Those yeah, would be Christmas season. every day of the year, but that's not what's happening. <laughs> I, I just, we're, talking about, we're talking about one game. I'm, we had uh, this exact yeah. same conversation about the Magic. And I understand that, that uh, uh, the Heat are not the Magic. But that's why I say it's a six-game series and the, not a five-game series. The thing that concerns me with Giannis Antetokounmpo, and it's it's good, it's honestly a backhanded compliment when I'm going to say this. But you guys talk about that that dog mentality at the end of the game. I think the problem, and it, it stems back to the fact that he can't shoot a jump shot. Yeah. Because teams late in games can sag off of him, bring help into the lane behind the primary on-ball defender, and if Giannis can't get to the basket. He's going to defer to guys like Chris Middleton, who are going to have better matchups. And I don't think it's I it's it's an interest it's a, it's a, a quandary for somebody like Giannis Antetokounmpo because he is such a smart player that I don't think he has the mentality to just force his way to the basket 
through three guys and, and finish at the rim in that kind of situation. I think he's too smart of a player, has too high of a basketball IQ to give up opportunities, giving it up to guys like Chris Middleton. And I think that will be detrimental to this team because you can't take the best the the best 48 minute player in the world as, as you termed it Luke and and take him out of take him take the ball out of his hands in that kind of situation. I'll tell you right now, probably not right now, they're probably asleep. In Orlando, maybe 2 hours ago, Budenholzer was watching film with Giannis, watching situations where he drove into a double team against the 6 foot 7 Jimmy Butler and a 6 foot 5 Duncan Robinson and said you need to spin in the lane and yam the ball right in that guy's face. And that's what's going to win us this series. He looks Giannis in the face and he says, if you do that, five-game series. If you don't, we're going home. One thing's for sure, I think game two is going to tell us a lot. Joel, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That adjustment is going to be huge. And and that's that's what it's going to come down to in this series. But that wraps it up for the Eastern Conference for this week. We move on to the end. We just finished watching as we're recording this. The <laughs> Utah Jazz and Denver Nuggets, game seven. Low-scoring game, very low-scoring game. And in a series that have been dominated by guards, it's Rudy Gobert and Nikola Jokic, the centers for their respective teams that, that step up in this one. It's Jokic and the Nuggets that end up getting this one done. They win this series in seven. Uh, another really close one. Uh, the game winner coming from Jamal Murray, uh, driving in, scoring on Gobert. A couple opportunities for the Jazz down the stretch. Uh, and actually, uh, Torrey Craig with, a, with an opportunity to seal the game, make it a four-point game with less than 20 seconds left in the game, blows the layup. Dude's going to Real Madrid if... <laughs> and, and it gives gives the Jazz an opportunity. Mike Conley gets off a shot at the buzzer that that just rims out, guys. Uh, this uh, we came into this series thinking it was going to be maybe maybe six games that the Nuggets win this series, maybe six games. Uh, and what's that look for? <laughs> <laughs> we were we we were all in pretty strong agreement that before this series started, this was the Nuggets series to lose. Oh yeah, sure. and, and game one. They, they win game one, but it's, it's very clear that the Utah Jazz aren't going away. And then the next three games, obviously you have the battle between Mitchell and Murray over the first four of those games. But the next three games, it's all Utah. All Utah. And then Denver rattles off three in a row to end the series. This was a back-and-forth series, a lot more exciting than I think anybody was expecting. But the Denver Nuggets come out of it, and I think they proved some things in this series, at least to me. Yeah, absolutely. You mentioned that, that duel between Murray uh, and Mitchell in the series, and they, they tried to force that tonight, unfortunately, and that's why it was such a low-scoring game. The bigs came in at the end. I think that might go down as one of the greatest shots in Jazz history if Conley's able to pull that at the buzzer because yeah. it was a quality look off I'd of this layup. I mean, it was it was perfectly scripted, unfortunately, you know. Yeah, and, and just some incredibly emotional shots we're going to see from Murray um, and, and Mitchell at the end of that game, but just two Warriors. You know, they blew a 3-1 lead, but... Jamal Murray's just built different. I mean, that's what we need to talk about here. And he's got Nikola Jokic. Obviously, Gobert came through for the Jazz, but it was that second star that Utah was really lacking when uh, Denver really started to come back in this game. And hopefully, that's a series we see next year, maybe 3-6 seed again, because I would love to see the rematch. I mean, I think this is – I mean, I, I said it in the, the sports page uh, in the rundown, but this might be the next best – play a robbery. I hope so. The NBA yep. is Jamal. Maybe they're both 23 years old and both the like same exact age. 
Murray's there for the next four. Well, it's so special because two. they guard each other. And you know what I mean? You can't say other. that about any other matchup. Exactly. I mean, this these two guys that are just absolute worth. They respect the hell out of each other too. So there's a respect aspect too. But once it's on the hardwood, you know, it's all you know. Everything goes out the window. This series was absolutely spectacular. Probably one of the better series in the NBA that I remember watching. I can think of maybe the the Blazers. Uh, Thunder or Blazers Rockets, pardon me, a couple years ago that had this type of intensity, but this was just two dogs going at it, and it's not. It goes beyond Jamal Murray and Donovan Mitchell, it's Jokic and Gobert as well. It's two fantastic matchups that you see on the floor for thirty of the forty-two minutes, and it, it just shows how good the NBA is. Where a, an eighty to seventy-six game that looked like the ninety-four Eastern Conference Finals between the Knicks and the Pacers can put you on the absolute edge of your seat. And man, I know we got to wrap it up, and move on, but. Uh, Denver's a, a Michael Porter Jr. away from being very dangerous to the Clippers in the next round. Maybe they don't even need him, based on what we I saw mean, from those two guys. Let's not forget what MPJ tonight. did uh, when the bubble started. Exactly. I mean, Robert Covington in a Mavericks jersey guard and Michael Porter Jr. in the Western Conference Finals in two years. <laughs> <laughs> Who knows? Who knows? Who knows? But it's, it's the Denver Nuggets moving on to the Western Conference semis. And as we release this episode on Wednesday morning, we have one more first round series to finish off. That game is going to be uh, tonight as you're listening to this, the Houston Rockets and the Oklahoma City Thunder. Uh, we predicted before the playoffs even started that this was going to be the most exciting playoff series uh, in, in the entire NBA. And obviously uh, we got a really exciting series out of Denver and Utah, but the story behind this series with the Chris Paul trade and his bad blood with James Harden and the Rockets organization as a whole and, and the Thunder uh, being able to pull off game six like they did, this is probably going to be one of the most intense game sevens, especially for a first-round series that we've seen in a while. Uh, yeah. Call this freezing cold takes, but there's a 0% chance this game ends in double digits. I think this – I don't think – if any team were to start getting a big lead, it's the Rockets, but Chris Paul will will that team to the end, absolutely, because think of just the, the massive chip on his shoulder from his entire career with the Hornets, entering the Clippers, never getting past the second round, never getting past the second round with one of the best teams in the NBA in the Clippers. Now he does it with a Thunder team that I think I had them finishing 11th in our NBA preview. And Mar- I, 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 I'll Nobody put my had hands to make up. the playoffs. I'll put sure. my hands up with that. And to be able to do this might be the biggest achievement he's ever done in his basketball career. Maybe. Leading this type of a Thunder team. I mean, I, I, I don't really have much of a prediction because how in the hell could you predict this game seven? I'll make a prediction. I, I, I still got the Rockets in this one. I got to be honest with you guys. I think Chris Paul snuck a couple of too many last laughs in game six for there to be a game seven. He pissed off a very good Robert Covington and a very talented backcourt. Uh, Russell Westbrook had three assists and seven turnovers in this game. That 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 that's not going to happen again. When are we going to start? When are we going to start? In game when are we going to start putting the the spotlight on Westbrook for his entire I career. Think, I think we did after what he just did in Game 6, and it's time for him to answer the call, the yeah, Giannis Bell, if you will. Yeah. I, I think the Rockets are going to win this game. I think that they're going to combine. Uh, you talk about Harden and Westbrook, 65, 18, and 15 would not surprise me between the two of them. And I agree with you. This is going to come down to the wire. Uh, but uh, i got to stick with my Rockets pick on this one. And I, it's going to be 
hopefully the most tantalizing watch it not be, and they yeah. win this game by 20 points, but, or somebody wins this game by 20 points, but uh, it, it's shaping up to be – you said it was the most watched non-Laker game of the year, game six was. And I, um, this one's going to easily crack three and a half. I'm going Thunder, honestly. I mean, two against one here. I mean, I think both of you are insane for trying to predict this. I'm going with Thunder. I'm I'm doing it, and it's just I'm just riding that wave for some reason. I I don't really know. I hate Chris Paul. I really do. If he wins Game Seven, top five, top six point guard of all time, in my opinion. What I mean, that's just. That, that's what we're Top approaching here. Top 15 player of all time? No. no. <laughs> too, many, too many centers on the list. Sure, sure, sure. Non-centers, top 15 player. Sure. I hate him to death. I think he might have just sealed his own fate by what he did to tick off those guys at the end of game six. Roll Maybe I'm wrong. The, 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 and he's staring at Harden at the free throw line. That was, that was fake. Well, he was staring at the bench. Okay. We'll, we'll see. And, and Harden, the little slap, he said it was gamesmanship. It Robert Covington pers- knows it was not gamesmanship. It became personal. Exactly. <laughs> But but the Thunder, honestly, I don't know what it is. It's, there's just a mentality about this team where, I mean, outside of Chris Paul, and even Chris Paul, you would say in his draft was was underdrafted for for his value in that draft. This is a, a team full of guys that none of them were expected to be stars coming into the league outside of Chris Paul. Yeah. Uh, I mean, Lou Dort is the, the biggest example of that. He's contributing to this team as an undrafted free agent rookie. Uh, you look at Shea Gilgis-Alexander that was expected to be like, what, a high-end backup point guard, potentially a mid-level starter coming out of college, and, and he's a star for this team. Steven Adams is a late lottery pick that you thought could be a physical presence on the inside as your backup center. But this team, there's, there's something about this team that has clicked, and there's something about this team that clicks for me in, in the way that they play that makes me confident in them as we have about a minute to wrap up here. Yeah, the last thing I'll say is Chris Paul seems to be a team wrecker. This is the first time I've seen him have this kind of great chemistry with a guy like Lou Dortz, those lesser guys on the roster, if you will. And it's SGA making it's and exactly it's making a huge difference. All I'm gonna say is, uh, there's nothing more dam- dangerous than a team with nothing to lose. Yeah, now that's what the Oklahoma City Thunder are. Uh, like, they're, like you said, I think earlier in the show, Luke, they're sitting on the they're playing with house money. They're they're sitting on the greatest collection of of draft picks in NBA history. And they're still... They the, stole his mom's credit card, and they're betting on DraftKings. But that, that will do it for uh, Beyond the Art for this week. It, it's late at night. we got things to do tomorrow. You get a double draft segment next week. How about that? Uh, at least on, on the podcast. If you're listening on the radio, you're not going to get it because we have a limited time slot. But that does it for this week on Beyond the Art. This has been Episode 7. Thank you for listening.